Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 156, the Atlas of Boston History. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm sitting down with Nancy Seasholes, the editor of the new book, The Atlas of Boston History, which just came out on Thursday. It's a historical atlas of Boston that covers the period from the last ice age right up to the present day. It has essays contributed by a wide range of well-regarded local historians, as well as many written by Seasholes herself. However, what sets this book apart is its beauty. As the format as an atlas indicates, it's richly illustrated with maps, charts, diagrams, infographics, historical photos, paintings, and much, much more. It's a book that any of my fellow Boston history nerds will love, and the author's going to tell you a little bit more about it in just a few moments. But before I talk to Nancy Seasholes, it's time for this week's upcoming historical event. Because we have an author interview this week, we'll be skipping the Boston Book Club. My pick for the featured historic event this week is a lunchtime talk at the Boston Athenaeum by Douglas Egerton, titled Heirs of an Honored Name, The Decline of the Adams Family and the Rise of Modern America. Anyone who's listened to the show for a while will know that I am a big admirer of the Adams family. I often use the letters of John and Abigail Adams as primary sources. We quoted passages from the letters and diaries of John Quincy in our show about early Charles River Bridges. And we've even outlined how two of John Quincy's brothers were involved in a riot at Harvard. John Quincy Adams' son and John Adams' grandson, Charles Francis Adams, was a respected historian in his own right whom we've quoted in our episode about the epidemics that decimated Boston's Native American population. After those three generations, however, Professor Egerton would argue that the Adams family in America entered an irreversible decline, always living in the shadow of its famous past. Here's how the Athenaeum describes his talk. John and Abigail Adams founded a famous political family, but they would not witness its calamitous fall from grace. When John Quincy Adams died in 1848, so began the slow decline of the family's political legacy. In Heirs of an Honored Name, award-winning historian Douglas R. Egerton depicts a family grown famous, wealthy, but also aimless. After the Civil War, Republicans looked to the Adamses to steer their party back to its radical 1850s roots. Instead, Charles Francis Sr. and his children, Charles Francis Jr., John Quincy II, Henry and Clover Adams and Louisa Adams Kuhn largely quit the political arena and found refuge in an imagined past of aristotic preeminence. An absorbing story of brilliant siblings and family strain, Heirs of an Honored Name shows how the burden of impossible expectations shaped the Adamses and through them, American history. That talk begins at noon on Friday, November 8th at the Boston Athenaeum on Beacon Hill. Advanced registration is required but there's no additional charge other than admission to the Athenaeum. And because we know that not everyone can find the time to attend a lunchtime talk, we have a bonus event this week. On Thursday, November 7th at 6 p.m., the Old South Meeting House will host an event in honor of the centennial of women's suffrage titled Massachusetts Women at the Forefront of Change. Here's how they describe it. Freddie Kay founder and president of Suffrage 100 Mass, will provide an overview of the suffrage movement in American history with special attention to Massachusetts activists who paved the way for women's suffrage, including African Americans and other marginalized groups. The event's free, but advanced registration is required. 
We'll have the links you need to register for both events in the show notes this week at hubhistory.com slash 156. Now, if you can believe it, this week marks the third anniversary of the Hub History podcast. Our first episode aired way back on October 30th, 2016. Rather than cringing when we hear how rough our show sounded back then and how spotty our research was, we like to focus on how far we've come in those three years. We've learned a lot about how to research, write, and record an audio podcast, but we do know we have a long way to go. In the meantime, you might be interested to know that episode 124, where we replayed the story of a 1908 battle between police and anarchists in JP and the story of the Brighton Stockyards, has been our most popular podcast episode in the past year. Of course, episode two, which was the first time we discussed the 1721 smallpox inoculation controversy, remains our most downloaded show of all time, even though we did a much better job covering the same topic in episode 114. All told, we've had over 360,000 downloads in the past three years, which we are incredibly grateful for. Longtime listeners will have noticed two major changes to our format in the past year. First, there are now occasional ads on the show. We're excited about that because advertising is a great way to cover the costs of making our show without it being too obtrusive or putting up barriers to accessing the show. And then second, whenever we don't have an ad to read, we ask our listeners to sponsor us on Patreon. Again, we're finding a way to cover our costs in what we hope is the least obtrusive way we can. We want to say thank you to everyone who's listened from the beginning and to everyone who's discovered us lately. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't have an excuse to talk to amazing authors like Nancy Seasholes or last week's guest Mark Peterson. And as long as we're saying thanks, we also want to say an extra special thank you to our Patreon sponsors whose support makes the podcast possible. If you'd like to help out, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Nancy Seasholes is a historian and a historical archaeologist. She's the past author of Walking Tours of Boston's Made Land and Gaining Ground, a history of landmaking in Boston. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of Gaining Ground over the years as a tour guide back in the day, when I used to teach at the Cambridge Center for Adult Ed, and now for podcast research. Her latest book is The Atlas of Boston History, which is a beautiful and ambitious work. Nancy Seasholes, I just want to say welcome to the show. Thank you. I've invited you here today to talk about your new book, The Atlas of Boston History, which is pretty different than some of the books we've profiled on the show recently. It's a historical atlas of Boston, which includes a collection of essays and then just some of the most richly illustrated pages that I've ever seen. I wonder if you could start out by just talking about how this project came to be and why it was, it was important to you to present the history of Boston in this very visual format. Well, actually, the, the Atlas of Boston History was my own idea. When I was working on my major book about all of the filling or the landmaking, as I call it, that's been done in Boston, I kept wishing that there were one place I could go to for maps of, say, 
the sewerage system at a particular time or the ra- where the railroads were or any number of things like that, as well as a book that would have all the population figures for Boston. And there was no such book of, or source where I could find those all in one place. So that's when I got the idea that bo- what Boston really needed was an historical atlas, something that would trace its history through maps. And in this case, not historical maps, but maps that would be drafted especially for it by a team of cartographers. So when I finished my last book, the Walking Tours book, I then called a committee of historians together to see if if they were interested in such an historical atlas and if we could decide on what should be in it. So that's who met from 2007 for two and a half years until 2010, hammering out the contents of what should go in this atlas. The reason I chose historians to work on this is because I wanted the atlas to tell a story of Boston's history. There are many historical atlases of other places, but many of them are organized topically. That is, they cover the industry of a place in one section, or its transportation in another section. And I wanted this atlas to show how Boston developed from the very early years right on up to the present. So this steering committee really determined the contents of the atlas and set the topics of what we call the atlas plates. In an atlas, as you probably know, there are double-page spreads called plates. So that's what we have in the historical atlas, in the Atlas of Boston History. Each one of these plates deals with a different topic. Now, you wanted to know why we chose to go from the last of the Ice Ages all the way up to the present. Well, we wanted to explain the setting that Boston's in, its geological setting. We wanted to explain something what had happened in the Boston area before Boston was founded, uh, Native American occupation, and then the Europeans who preceded the Puritans who founded Boston. And then we wanted to carry that story right up to the present. So that's why it covers such a large spread. I just want to describe maybe for our listeners what that first plate or the first set of plates looks like, because it, it grabbed my attention immediately. Your your publisher was kind enough to share a, a digital copy of the book with me to, to read in advance, but I immediately, upon seeing the first plate, rushed out and pre-ordered a hard copy of the book because it, it was so visually arresting. So on the first uh, plate, the first two-page spread, Joe Bagley contributed, you contributed, a couple other folks contributed to, to this section. There is a topographical map showing sort of where the glacial drumlins and, and moraines and stuff in the Boston Basin are. And then right below that, I guess a, an illustrated photo or a photo composite illustrating what the ice sheet would have looked like superimposed over the modern Boston, Boston skyline. And I, I hadn't seen anything that so effectively illustrated what glaciation in the, in the last ice age was. But then on the facing page, it then shows what's underfoot in the Boston Basin, sort of the, uh, the glacial till and then blue clay bedrock uh, going down hundreds of feet uh, below our feet. And then what some of that rock, especially the famous Roxbury Pudding Stone looks like when it's quarried and used in the famous buildings around Boston. So uh, we'll include a sample 
pay our link to the to your website, the Atlas of Boston History org, where folks can get a sample page and see just how beautiful these plates are. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Actually, that idea of showing the depth of the glacier over Boston was Joe's idea, and he put together that photograph. I I actually took the photograph. That's a photograph of the Boston Basin taken from Belmont Hill, for which I had to trespass terribly <laughs> on someone's property. And I was doing okay until their dog found me. <laughs> and then At the least people, this isn't being recorded, so nobody will ever know. <laughs> the people weren't happy at all. And I kept saying, oh, but no. this is going to be in a book. That didn't <laughs> seem to impress them. Well, in any case, so we needed this photo of the Boston (laughs) Basin so Joe could put the glacier on top of it. So, as I said, so Joe, Joe, if that was Joe's idea. And Joe Bagley, of course, is the city archaeologist for the city of Boston. But that points out what you've offline told me about the process of how both the text and the illustrations come together. So, can you describe, it sounds like, the authors of each section had almost complete free reign in deciding what visually should be included with that text textual section. Visually, but actually they had a lot of say, of course, over what went into the plate. The steering committee that I described, the one that hammered out the contents of the atlas also provided a description of each plate, basically what should be in it. And that was sort of a guideline. The members of the steering committee, whom as I said are uh, historians of Boston who write on Boston, had a lot of expertise for some of these topics, but then we had to go out and look for other authors for other topics. In any case, each author of a plate was given the description of what should be in it. Then the author would write the text talking about, as you call it, the essay, but we called them texts, of about 400 words, describing the concepts and the ideas to be presented there, and then they would decide on the visual material to be presented. In this case, since I was co-author, I'd always been really interested in the fact that there are two types of Roxbury pudding stone, and so that was one of the things we really wanted to identify and show, which we did. I also was interested in showing the correct outlines of the Boston Basin, this geological formation that Boston sits in. And then, as I said, we wanted to show the depth of the last ice sheet. So that was sort of a combination. We got the information about the bedrock, the location of the bedrock, and the correct boundaries of the Boston Basin from our co-authors in the uh, engineering department at Tufts. One thing you, you began to point out and I want to follow up on is the fact that although there are a few historic maps throughout this book, it really relies more on newly created maps that are created especially for this project. So how are those actually being sourced? Who Who is creating the maps that go into the pages of this book? I would say those were produced by the people I consider the two heroines of the project are two cartographers who are Vicki Taylor and Aaron Bolton, who work for International Mapping Associates in Ellicott City, Maryland. I found uh, this firm through a uh, cartographer who worked for them. Um, his name is Alex Tate 
who had been highly recommended, and they are the ones who then drew up these maps. We would show them the information that we wanted mapped, and then they would do the maps. For example, for the plate that you're speaking of, the one about the end of the Ice Age, we sent them a map of the Boston Basin that was quite complicated. They simplified it for our purposes, and then added in the other thing that you mentioned. It shows the drumlins. These are glacial formations that are left from the Ice Age. And we sent them another map showing the locations of the drumlins, which they also added to it. So they were the ones who created these maps for us. Along with the maps that go into each plate, there are, of course, a lot of other visual elements that the authors might choose to include. So there are sections that are illustrated by paintings of a historic subject in, in Boston history. There are historic photos. Uh, there are a lot of other original creations, like uh, new photographs, photographs of artifacts, uh, a lot of illustrations. Like there's a series of line drawings through many of the different chapters um, illustrating, I guess, architectural trends in Boston through time. So how do you make sure that with so many different contributors and so many different styles that it stays visually consistent across the whole work? That was really up to the cartographers. They did a lot in terms of trying to lay out plates that looked that were visually consistent. But to address this issue of the line drawings about architectural styles in particular, that was something that had been determined uh, by the steering committee in the first place. We have sprinkled throughout the atlas, we have a number of plates about Boston in a specific year. And most of those have what we call an architectural sidebar. That is something explaining the predominant style of architecture at that date. So, those um, for each of those, we normally illustrated a public building, an upper-class house, and then a working-class house. Those line drawings were made by somebody at the cart cartographer's firm, so he's very skilled at this, based on photos that we supplied. So, um, in most of the architectural sidebars, I actually worked very, um, closely with the author of the plate. Oftentimes, I wrote the text. Um, but that's why those were consistent. They were drawn by the same person, and generally the text was written by the same person. I will say that in the section on the uh, the tenement period in the early 20th century, the illustration of the triple-decker could easily have been uh, where the, the triple-decker I used to live in in Mission Hill. Well, we I tried to get – that was a photo I went out and took of a typical uh, – triple-decker, and I had some ideas in mind about what I wanted. So I'm glad it looked like yours, too, because that's it was in Dorchester. Yeah, it probably tells you how typical the one I lived in was. So I, I've been focusing on the book's visual elements, because I, I think that's really an important focus of, of this book. But the text exists also, and you have this pretty illustrious group of historians from uh, archaeologist Joe Bagley to past podcast guests, uh, J.L. Bell, Mark Peterson, familiar names like Jim, Jim Vrabel, Bob Allison. When you described this project to somebody who you hoped would contribute, what did you say? How, what was the approach like when you were approaching somebody you hoped would contribute? I said that we were uh, producing a new historical atlas of Boston. I generally sent them this description of plates that we had come up with um, as a, at the end of the steering committee meetings told them which plate I was interested in having them work on, and people generally accepted. People were interested in this. 
Yeah, I believe that. I, I really do. It seems like a very interesting and fun project to work on, but I, I'm also amazed at the brevity of the, the textual uh, contribution. So, for example, last week on the show, we interviewed Mark Peterson about his book, The City State of Boston. And in that book, he describes the mid-18th century Boston economy. And I didn't count pages, but I would guess it's 30 plus. And he covers that same topic for you in about a page. 400 words. <laughs> <laughs> How did you manage to keep your contributors under control? <laughs> It was very difficult, but Mark was Mark is not the person to talk about in terms of difficulty. He, he stuck to the guidelines. He was very helpful with other things. Right, I so of course only use him for, for an example because he's so fresh in my mind. But it's he was a pleasure <laughs> with whom to work. <laughs> but it does sound challenging. You have these people who have spent entire careers talking about a particular topic and to make them Well, I had in mind something I wanted for those ones on the economy and he taught me something. I thought that what we he was going to be showing were trade routes that were established both in the 17th century and the 18th century. And what he taught me was there weren't really that many established trade routes, that Boston merchants really worked sort of on a catch-as-catch-can. They would take cargoes and then sell them wherever they could. There were certain ports that they dealt with and certain types of cargoes, but there was, there were not routes that we could mark on the map. So that's what his maps show. It's the places with Bo which Boston traded, but not necessarily these definite routes. Then we have a later plate picking up on this in the economy from 1776 to 1807, where in fact trade routes were established. This is the time when the China trade became important, as well as some ports in Europe. Those do have arrows showing where the trade went. But Mark's as I said, Mark's maps just show the ports. And so I really learned something. He was very insistent that it be done that way. And I think it's a good lesson. Were there other contributions where you either learned something unexpected or where one of the contributors took the charge that you know, it's sort of a, an assignment in advance and, and took an unexpected approach to that material? Oh, dear. I was afraid you were going <laughs> to ask this. And I haven't thought of another... Every plate I'm looking at, I learned something. So along with keeping this this wide group of contributors on task and on target, you also are a top contributor to the book yourself. You wrote at least one chapter in almost all of the 11 uh, major sections. I think you wrote contributions for at least seven of the 11. Well, if you want to know why I wrote so many, sometimes it was because we couldn't find another author. Usually it was an area in which I had real expertise. For example, there are um, two plates specifically about the land making in different periods, and then one where we combine it with another topic. We'd hoped to combine land making with other topics, but it really didn't work out. It just got to be too confusing. Uh, we ended up at one point with what I called the nightmare map. So <laughs> we separated them out. So I had to do that. That's my area of expertise. But there were other things. We knew we wanted um, a plate, for example, about the Great Fire. We were coming near our deadline. No one had done it. It's a rather simple plate. I knew that I was going to base it on 
um, Bruce Twickler's work that he did on Damrell's fire. This was a while ago, but he had given me all their data and their maps. So I was able to use those and I knew that there was this wonderful panoramic view of the fire district after the fire. So, you know, things like that, which are not necessarily my area of expertise, but were not too hard to put together. So that's partly why I did so many. Oh, one thing I learned a lot about, I did all the plates on the water and sewerage systems. That's something I really wanted to know about. I certainly had dealt with them a lot in my own work, but I did find out where all the materials were and did those plates. I actually had a very interesting time dealing with the MWRA. I had to get a security clearance to get their records and use their library because the lines run underground. This was... Well, somewhat close to to uh, 9/11, and they were very nervous about this. So that was a topic I learned something about really for the atlas because I was particularly interested. Yeah, I love the systems that make a city function. So I was really gratifying for me to see those plates and the illustrations of sort of the development of both water and and sewer over time. You know, we. I think there are a lot of different works that have tried to address Boston's search for water over the years um, and the ever wider net we've thrown until finally finally ending up with the Quabbin, but much less focus on sewerage systems, which are equally important. What comes in must go out. Well, as I said, I learned a lot doing it. The other thing, the other aspect of the infrastructure on which we have a lot of plates is public transportation, basically the T system. And that's partly because we really had a good expert, Charlie Bainey, who is works for the Boston or is an officer of the Boston Street Railway Association. So he and I worked together on those plates. And then we wanted also to have one about the highway system. Actually, Sam Bass Warner, who was my advisor through a good part of the beginning of the project, feels that there are many too many plates about the infrastructure. <laughs> and he may be he may be right. The infrastructure, it drives so much of Boston's history. The the decision by a town like West Roxbury to to vote to be annexed by the city and, and Charlestown too, it's driven by the fact that they don't have access to f- clean fresh water. They can't deal with their increasing sewerage needs. So seeing how those systems evolved for the city really goes in parallel with a lot of the other narratives of Boston history. I want to return to something you touched on briefly, which is the topic of, of landmaking, which obviously is the focus of your earlier book, Gaining Ground, but it does come into play in uh, the Atlas of Boston history as well. And the the first time it comes up is much earlier than sort of the landmaking boom of the late 19th century. You focus on land that's made between 1786 and 1828 in one of the plates. It's right at that turn of the 19th century. So this is before the Otis Chapman steam shovel. It's before rail cars could really be effectively used to move gravel. So how were people making land at that time? I will answer your question, but first I'd like to say something else about the Atlas. And that is that one of the outstanding 
pieces of information in the atlas from my point of view is that each map in the atlas has a shoreline that's correct for the date of the atlas. The shoreline of Boston changed radically, especially through the 19th century, but into the 20th too. So we decided early on, and this really meant a lot of work for the cartographers, that we wanted the shorelines to be accurate for the, the map of that plate. These were reconstructed basically using historical maps, um, especially after 1896, the coast and geodetic charts. So this was a major job for the cartographers. Sometimes these shorelines were constructed out of many maps. So before I return to that, so that's even when the topic of the map had nothing to do with landfill or landmaking or the shoreline. That's right. The shoreline, whatever you see, you see a plate on Boston in 1860, that's the 1860 shoreline. That had to be a challenge for the cartographers. You can't sort of reuse the underlying uh, data. You're sort of reconstructing the map for every iteration at that point. That's really remarkable. I think the first mention of landmaking is in this period, right at the turn of the 19th century. And I've looked at sort of the later from the Back Bay Project on how landmaking was done at that time, but I've never focused as much on this earlier period. So can you just give us a quick overview of how landmaking was done before? Right. How was it done before before power machinery? Uh, Basically, with and I think we illustrate them, but in a later period. The dirt or the whatever it was was hauled in horse-drawn tip carts. They were two-wheeled carts that in which they would load the dirt to fill someplace, and then it would dump backwards into the area being filled. This is what carried the dirt from Beacon Hill down to fill the mill pond. That's today's Bullfinch Triangle. It's what um, probably even filled the earlier places along the shoreline, although we don't have as as good documentation about the method we do have from some archaeological excavations we know what types what types of material they used they tended to use trash from local shops i mean we find big deposits of shoe leather obviously from shoemakers bottle glass and things thrown out by taverns but um and they probably just put it in carts and dumped it in yeah i think i've heard about that sort of trash fill getting used around uh, the city dock, the Faneuil Hall uh, underlying area. Yes, yes, that's one place where there was a lot of early filling. Trash was not an acceptable form of fill, especially beginning right at the beginning of the 19th century. They were very worried about what they considered the miasmas that would come from rotting organic matter. This was called the miasmatic theory of disease. So very early on, they decreed that fill had to be clean. That meant gravel. It could mean, though, uh, mud dug from tidal flats. But what was not acceptable right from right the beginning of the 19th century on was trash. None of these projects were filled with trash until the 20th century, when finally after the adoption of the germ theory of disease, and they knew that diseases were not caused by these bad odors from trash, they went back to using trash again. And of course, the ultimate trash-filled place in Boston is Columbia Point, which has 30 feet of trash. It, it was a dump, a city dump, and that's basically what has filled Columbia Point and what UMass is built on, as they well know, because they've had a lot of problems because of it. BC High, too. 
So returning to the sort of the organization of the book, it does cover such a, a wide range of chronologically from Boston before 5,000 years ago, right through 2019. So to organize that wide, that very wide uh, range of time, the book's broken down into 11 individual sections and each section has several chapters. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, the, the choices that went into how the book's organized? Well, I think it's uh, one of the basic concepts is the book is organized chronologically. Many historical atlases are organized topically. That is, you'll see everything about the industrial uh, development of a place in one section, or if it's a country, maybe it's agricultural development in one place, or the development of its transportation system in a whole section of plates. We wanted to tell a story, and this is really important. It's one of the reasons why I invited historians to work on this project, and I think we've been criticized by historical geographers by not including more historical geographers. The truth of the matter is, I didn't know that many historical geographers <laughs> who work on Boston. There's one, but I didn't know a lot of others. So, the, the atlas is organized chronologically, and each section deals with Boston in a particular uh, period. There's this initial section that we discussed that talks about Boston before it was founded in 1630, the one that covers the plate on the last Ice Age. Then there's one on uh, Native American occupation and one on European exploration and settlement here before Boston was founded. The second section, the one um, talks about Boston in the 1600s. Uh, so first there's a plate on the founding of Boston. There's one on its economy a plate on relations with Native Americans up through King Philip's War in 1675-76. And then there's one of these plates that we have on Boston in a particular year. In this case, it's Boston in 1676, actually chosen because there's a very good reconstructed map of Boston in 1676, which we use as the base map for that plate. The next section is about Boston in the 1700s. Uh, there's a plate on the economy, one on Boston in the slave trade, a, another plate on Boston in a specific year, this time 1743, and then there's a plate on revolutionary events in Boston, uh, uh, showing where the important revolutionary sites were, and then some maps drawn by our cartographers that show the events of April 18th, 19th, 1775. This is Paul Revere's ride and the British march out to Concord and retreat to Boston. The next section is about the history of Boston from the end of the Revolution through 1828. There's a plate on the economy from the end of the Revolution through the embargo in 1807, another plate on Boston in a specific year, this time 1800, uh, and then a plate on the building of early bridges connecting the Boston Peninsula to the mainland and the beginning of the filling of tidal flats around that peninsula to create new land. So for each of these, the, the plates that portrays Boston in a specific year, so 1676, 1743, 1800, 
are those particular years chosen because there is an especially good historical map to use as a base map? Or is there another reason why those particular years were chosen as the, the representatives from each period? In the early period, they were chosen because there's a good base map. 1676 um, is a good reconstructed map of Boston. 1743 is based on the update of the Bonner map from that year. 1800 is based on a very good map of Boston by Osgood Carlton in that year. And 1855 was chosen because there are two excellent maps of Boston showing every structure in the city in 1852, and there were both a city and a state census of Boston in 1855. Then after that, it's more dependent on the federal census. Uh, the other ones are 1910, 1950, and 2010. And that reliance on the census, we should point out that when you have these maps that are representative of Boston in a specific year, it's not just streets and houses. It's also demographic trends. It's the sort of economic activity at the time, changes to Boston. There's a lot more detail. All the plates about Boston in a specific year try to say something, as you just pointed out, about the demographics, something about the composition of Boston at the time, the where um, the nativity, that is where people were born, or racial groups. They also um, generally... Uh, have a uh, graph that shows the population of Boston in relation to the other towns or cities in the, um, well, originally in the colonies, but then in the U.S. Uh, and many of these have this architectural sidebar that I described. Beyond that, uh, let's see, we also tried for most of these, we tried to map the location of places of worship. Uh, we begin including uh, synagogues in the 1855 map. We had hoped to show the location of schools, but that just got to be too complicated. So the early maps, the 1676 and the 1743, show the schools. But after that, as I said, the data were just too complicated to include. Yeah, and after 1855, you must get into Boston begins to change so radically physically at that point because of both land making and also annexation of all of the surrounding towns that the... Uh, the plates of Boston in a specific year have to get geographically much larger beyond a certain year. Yes. And also the, well, the population data was was varied. I would say our most successful plate in showing the location of different population groups in Boston is the one for 2010, because there the data available allowed us to have a dot for every 50 people, which we then colored, showing where the whites live, blacks, Asians, and Hispanics. But we didn't have that degree of detailed data for the other years. So for 1910, we had a different map showing where each of one of each group lived, the uh, U.S. born, the Irish, the Italians, etc. For 1855, we did it differently. We had a pie graph for each ward showing the distribution of these populations within each ward. And I think that worked a little more successfully. And I, I, inter I interrupted you as you were explaining to our listeners how the books uh, organized. We made it through the first four sections of prehistoric Boston, the introduction of European settlement, the pre-revolutionary British town of Boston, and then the transition around the, the turn of the 19th century from uh, the town of Boston to the city of Boston. So after that, what, how, how are the rest of the sections organized? 
Well, the um, the fifth section is called the Athens of America. It's about Boston uh, as a cultural. It focuses on Boston as a cultural center um, in the pre-Civil War period. Then there's one on immigration and industrialization, a section we call Metropolitan Boston. This is now post-Civil War where Boston is expanding by uh, actually tripled its size by annexing Roxbury, Dorchester, West Roxbury, Brighton, and Charlestown. And then the way that these uh, suburbs developed and something about the development of the water and sewage system and the park system to serve these areas. Then there's a whole section on Boston at the turn of the 20th century. It covers it covers the economy, but it covers cultural developments too, as well as one of these plates on population. And it ends with a plate on the mayoral election of 1910, which was the one where Honey Fitz, Fitzgerald defeated James J. Storrow and was really the election that changed the control of Boston politics from the Yankees to the Irish, who controlled Boston politics then for almost the entire remainder of the 20th century. Then there's a section on Boston's decline. Boston had a much longer depression than the National Depression. The National Depression, of course, the one starting in 1929 and going on throughout most of the 30s. But the Boston Depression really began in 1920 and lasted until 1960. So we have a plate about that and other events that occurred during that period. Then a section on the revival beginning in 1960 that has a lot on updating the infrastructure, urban renewal, um, and a plate on the school busing crisis in 1974. And then the last section has more about updating the infrastructure, <laughs> four plates on the basis of the present economy. Um, higher education, Boston is a medical center, is a commercial center, the visitor and tourist industry, one on environmental problems, and then a last plate on Boston in 2010. So in those 11 sections, you take us all the way up to the present day. And I think there are essays that are talking about Boston in 2019 even. There's a lot about the successes and failures and cycles of success and failure and creating a, a better Boston, a modern Boston and you wind up, as as you say, with some of the environmental challenges of our era, which a lot of that revolves around climate change. What sort of impression should the reader take away of where Boston is now and then where Boston would be heading in the future? If there was going to be a Section 12, what do you think would be included in that? That's a really interesting question. It's not one that we really considered. Well, I think the implication is that Boston has Boston is in a an upswing. Boston is in a period of development. If you look at the plates in the last section on the present economy, that's definitely the message. But that there are problems coming up. I mean, the climate change and rising sea level is going to be a big challenge to Boston. That plate that we did on the environmental problems was actually finished in 2014, meaning that the data are accurate to 2014. We do have a section on on sea level rise, but I think if we had completed it more recently, we would have had even more emphasis on sea level rise. I think it's become even more of a dire challenge. Yeah, I think it's going to be such a major 
um, problem for Boston because of all the made land. It, it, you know, what they did when they filled this, these areas, many of them in the 19th century, they just filled to above the level of high tide and just left it. So when high tide increases, then those places are going to be inundated. And you can see that in the seaport on storm tides already. There's already street-level flooding on Absolutely. Absolutely. That's all man-made land. So I hope our listeners would like to hear more about the Atlas and hopefully read the Atlas as well. Are there any upcoming events in the Boston area where people can learn more about the Atlas and hear some of that from, from you? Yes, there are many coming up. On uh, Wednesday, October 30th, I will be talking at Porter Square Books at the Porter Square Shopping Center in Cambridge. That's at 7 p.m. On Thursday, November 14th at 5.30, I will, there's going to be a reception first at the Massachusetts Historical Society on Boylston Street and then a talk a short talk by me, and then a panel discussion with three of the members of the steering committee. And then on Wednesday, December 11th at uh, 5.30, there's going to be another program at the Harvard Map Collection at Pusey Library in Harvard Yard, also about the Atlas. All of these events are listed on the Atlas website, the um, URL of the Atlas website is www.atlasofbostonhistory, all one word, dot org. And there you can see sample plates, so you can actually see what the Atlas looks like, and a whole um, list of all the plates in the Atlas Um so you can see what topics are covered. But I recommend that. I think it's a little hard to understand the Atlas just being talked about. It really is something you need to look at. So the website's a good place to do so. The book again is The Atlas of Boston History, Nancy C. Scholes. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. To learn more about Nancy C. Scholes and her Atlas of Boston History, Check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 156. We'll have a link to purchase the book online, as well as links to all our upcoming talks. We'll also make sure to include a link to the book's website, where you can see sample pages from each of the book's 11 sections, showing off just how carefully thought out and beautifully put together this work truly is. And of course, we'll have links to information about both of our upcoming historical events. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and finally, Spotify. You can stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts remains the most popular way for people to listen to podcasts. If you subscribe on Apple, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, 
Drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of our appreciation. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to interview Dr. Jesse Morgan Owens, author of Girl in Black and White, the story of Mary Mildred Williams.